you know, the starting point for forming our, our 3D robots is this multi-layer, you know, uh, sequence of fabrication steps. But, but what's uh, unique, I guess, in, in, in what we're doing here is that we can take those planar multi-layer architectures, we can release them uh, as thin films, essentially, from uh, thin structured films, uh, from the underlying supporting uh, substrate. Uh, and then we can uh, buckle them in, in a controlled manner to uh, move those 2D collections of materials into the third dimension. And, and that's kind of a critical aspect. I guess it's difficult to build a robot that's just perfectly planar in 2D in its geometry. You think about, you know, uh, insect life maybe as an inspiration for microscale robots. They all involve, you know, complex 3D articulations and, and architectures. And so being able to move those patterned thin film materials out of the plane up into the third dimension is critically important. And um, the technique that we that we use to do that, uh, you know, is, is similar conceptually to, uh, you know, a children's pop-up book in a sense, uh, that, that we're controlling uh, buckling deformations that, that irreversibly then move, move those, those 2D structures in, into 3D uh, architectures. And so that, that's how we form, uh, you know, robots that resemble crickets and inchworms and crabs and all kinds of other, you know, structures where, where the legs move out in a direction orthogonal to the plane of the, of the body. Uh, of of the robot, so so that's kind of one feature of. Um In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dwini, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for this show comes from Science Robotics Journal. I really find Science Robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about their research. Thanks Science Robotics for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. And maybe I would like to ask you first, uh, how do you see the material and architecture if we speak about in the material level and thinness papers focusing on the small scale? How do you see the combination of material and architecture in the design in different scales? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's a good question. So I guess any sort of robotic system uh, relies on, you know, a specific architecture uh, for the overall device construct, but but also, you know, embedding various uh, functional materials and in, in layouts that achieve a certain engineering goal and and, and 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 allows one to satisfy requirements. So I guess our robots are no different in that sense. Um, you know, the, the focus for us is on very small scale uh, robots as just kind of an exploratory academic level effort, but but one in which, you know, successful outcomes may have imp implications for how we think about, you know, minimally invasive surgeries, for example, uh, in the future. So small scale was, was an important attribute uh, in, in the devices that, that we've uh, reported in this paper. 
the the other um you know feature is an ability to um locomote on solid surfaces in open air so so there are quite a few sort of uh micro robots that are designed to swim uh in in liquids and, and i think that that work is great it's very interesting i think far fewer examples however exist of uh you know sub millimeter scale robots that are able to walk on solid surfaces you know in, in open air as i mentioned before so those are our two goals i guess is to develop a set of you know fabrication schemes and uh, design architectures and, and functional materials that would allow us to build very tiny uh, walking robots that that we could uh, control uh, remotely mm -hmm. So I think it's interesting also you mentioned that be having heterogeneous material and plus architecture. In that sense, which one is significant when it comes to tackling this problem? If you speak on the smaller scale, you need to get this feature, for example. Which one do you think was leveraging the possibilities that, that can do different modes of locomotion? Is it significantly in architecture or using heterogeneous material, if you can elaborate on that? Yeah, well, well, probably both. They they sort of go uh, hand in hand. You know, there's strong synergies there. I, I guess um, I I feel like the the main advances in in this latest paper, you know, from our group are in um, techniques for forming um, very tiny 3D structures uh, in ways that uh, align with the kind of thin film growth etching and photolithographic patterning techniques that are developed from the semiconductor industry. So you know, the, the process really begins with those kinds of uh, techniques in, in microfabrication, uh, you know, uh, a sequence of uh, deposition of thin films, um, patterning of those films, um, you know, in, in a repetitive uh, cycle to create complex multi-material, multi-layer structures that, that have, uh, you know, the, the necessary geometries. So, so you think about the way an integrated circuit is built, it's very much similar to the way that we start the fabrication of our 3D microscale robots. That turns out to be very powerful because we can leverage, you know, all of the technologies and manufacturing approaches that, that have been developed in the integrated circuit uh, industry. And, and we can also very naturally integrate then all the various microsystems technologies that can be achieved with, with those kinds of schemes. So, so it's really, you know, the starting point performing our our 3d robots is this multi-layer you know uh sequence of fabrication steps but but what's uh unique i guess in 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 what we're doing here is that we can take those planar multi-layer architectures we can release them uh as thin films essentially from uh, thin structured films uh from the underlying supporting um substrate uh, and then we can uh, buckle them in, in a controlled manner to uh, move those 2D collections of materials into the third dimension. And, and that's kind of a critical aspect. I guess it's difficult to build a robot that's just perfectly planar in 2D in its geometry. You think about, you know, uh, insect life maybe as an inspiration for microscale robots. They all involve, you know, complex 3D articulations and, and architectures. And so being able to move those patterned thin film materials out of the plane up into the third dimension is critically important. And um, the technique that we that we use to do that, uh, you know, is, is similar conceptually 
to uh, you know a children's pop-up book in a sense uh, that that we're controlling uh, buckling deformations that that irreversibly then move, move those those 2d structures in into 3d uh, architectures and so that that's how we form uh, you know robots that resemble crickets and inchworms and crabs and all kinds of other you know structures where where the legs move out in a direction orthogonal to the plane of the, of the body uh, of of the robot so so that's kind of one feature of um, our work is the ability to form these very tiny 3D structures out of advanced materials uh, that are patterned with very high resolution and fidelity. So, so that's that's one um, unique aspect of what we're doing relative to other work in micro robotics. The, the the other thing is in the development of kind of a remotely actuated and remotely addressed um, muscle type structure, which which relies on a shape memory uh, alloy, which which is sort of an old class of material. But what we've done is we've uh, structured those shape memory alloys into uh, shapes. We've located them at the joints of the limbs of our uh, robots. And then we uh, coat them conformally with a thin layer of glass that uh, provides kind of an elastic, elastic restoring force. So local heating will um, induce a shape change in those alloy materials to, to their uh, original sort of remembered shape, I guess. And then uh, upon cooling, that thin layer of glass acts as an elastic restoring force to move uh, that shape memory alloy structure back into its, uh, its deformed uh, geometry. And so that creates like a two-way motion. Uh, and uh, by repetitive uh, thermal actuation remotely using a, uh, uh, a laser uh, and, and optical absorption to induce that heating, uh, we can create a gate. And so we can actuate different limbs across uh, the body of the robot. And if we do that in sequence, we can cause the robot to walk in, in different uh, directions. So, so it's that kind of um, uh, scheme for actuation uh, and um, you know, uh, gate uh, coupled with this uh, 3D approach in uh, uh, fabricating uh, a tiny sort of uh, submillimeter scale structures. Mm -hmm. Great. Maybe there's two questions here. The first one about maybe the challenges of multi-material. It seems the multi-material is still quite challenging, maybe in soft robotics, so to speak. And also the design consideration for the architecture in that scale. What may be challenging from the experience in fabrication or the design of the geometry and combining this multi-material in that scale, what the design consideration do you think very significant when you design? Yeah, well, I think you know any um, robot includes a diver diverse collection of materials. I'm not sure of any really kind of useful or you know meaningful robot can be built out of a single material. Maybe there's some certain examples of that, but but you're quite limited, and so. Um, you know, I think an ability to bring diverse classes of materials together in sort of a monolithic uh, construct is, is probably a key requirement of uh, advanced robots for, for the future. And, and certainly that also applies, um, you know, as a consideration around the design of uh, submillimeter scale robots. So if you think about, you know, options in, in, in patterning and, and fabricating submillimeter scale 3D structures, I think a lot of people would immediately, uh, you know, turn to various techniques in uh, 3D printing, uh, stereolithography, or uh, you know, direct write type type printing approaches, and and you could you could go down that path, but I think it's um, 
you know, it's quite difficult to, to embed multiple classes of diverse materials into a single 3D structure using those approaches. They, they work pretty, pretty well if, if you're interested in a 3D structure made out of a polymer or maybe a ceramic or, or metal. But if you want a structure that includes semiconductors and metals and polymers and ceramics all together patterned relative to one another with great uh, registration and fine spatial resolution, I think you quickly move outside of the realm of uh, options that are supported with uh, 3D printing techniques as, as they exist today. And so I think our approach is different uh, and uh, valuable in that con context because it bypasses those limitations uh, and uh, leverages, as I was mentioning before, the very sophisticated uh, manufacturing techniques that are used for 2D planar structures in the integrated circuit industry and you know, uh, generally the, the micro uh, electromechanical systems in industry, optoelectronics all formed, you know, using these sorts of uh, layer by layer and high resolution photolithography approaches. We leverage all of that. And so, so we immediately, you know, uh, have as a starting point, uh, you know, a very high level of sophistication in uh, materials options, geometries, and so on. And, um, and uh, we, we create the structures. And then the 3D happens as a final step uh, to transform geometrically, you know, 2D structures, multi-material structures for, formed in that kind of way up, up into the third dimension to, to realize the kind of uh, architectures that are, necessarily, uh, are necessary for kind of realistic uh, insect-inspired, I guess, uh, ro robots at, at these scales. Great. Maybe I want to go for again with stimulus to change the shape of the robot and make an out of plan formation here. Have you ever thought about other techniques beyond heating, for example? Do you think? Yeah, I. I mean, I think we've, um, you know, presented one one possibility, you know, for for actuation. And uh, as you point out, it's it's thermal in in the basic mechanism, exploiting this shape memory alloy and and this uh, sort of elastically resi resilient coating. Uh, on top of it to, to create this two-way repeatable motion. Um, you know, at these very small scales, um, thermal is not too bad because the rates of passive cooling are very high because of the uh, large surface area to volume ratio. So you can actually make these robots move pretty quickly, uh, even though the, the mechanism for actuation is, is thermal in its origin. So, so it's not slow in, in that sense. Um, maybe not as power efficient as it could be, I guess, uh, as, as a thermal sort of technique. May, maybe, you know, power efficiency represents a, a, a disadvantage of sorts. I think the way that we're uh, inducing the heating by, by uh, optical illumination um, is, is a reasonable kind of starting point, but, but it does require optical access, you know, to, to the robot. So you need to be able to scan a laser across the body of the robot to actuate different you know, of these shape memory alloy based muscles to, to create the, the desired movements. And, and maybe, you know, certain applications um, would, would uh, allow for that optical access in, in others. I think that maybe uh, creates sort of certain limitations. And so I feel like, uh, you know, into the future, there, there are many other opportunities for, for different forms of actuation. Um, maybe they're still thermal in their origin, but perhaps they um, eliminate this requirement for optical access. And, and there, I think, you know, for that, that range of possibilities, as well as 
other forms of actuators. I, I think the approach that we've put together for forming the 3D structures, the architectures, uh, are going to be quite uh, compatible with, with almost any type of material that one could conceive of for, for the muscles, for, for the actuators, and, uh, and also with the very natural ability to embed radio frequency circuitry and, and other kinds of um, electronic components directly into the, into the body of the, the robot, uh, maybe uh, to support other kinds of uh, modes of remote control. So, so again, I think we're pretty happy with, with, the, with the fabrication route. And um, you know, as new ideas for actuators emerge, I, I think they will drop in quite nicely. Uh, to to this scheme for for forming the robots and uh, you know we put put forward one one kind of idea and it it sort of works but it's not perfect and and so I I think there's definitely room for improvement there uh, but like I said I I think the fabrication uh, schemes are going to be well aligned with with any material that I can think of or any actuation scheme that that I can think of um, you know will will be compatible and and easily uh, integrated into these kinds of uh, 3D robot structures that, that, that we formed in this way. Maybe a quick question. Do you think there's a limitation for any kind of material with architecture when it comes to fabrication? Because I don't know from your experience, if there's any limitation to structure? Yeah, I, I suppose there are some lim limitations ultimately. Um, I don't think the limitations are in feature sizes. We could go much smaller, uh, you know, actually than than the the robots that we reported. The, the difficulty, at least in terrestrial robots moving on solid surfaces in air, is that contact forces begin to dominate as the uh, size of the robots uh, continues to to decrease. So so we went about as small as you can possibly go without, um, you know stiction becoming a problem uh, as you might imagine just intuitively as objects get smaller and smaller uh, those surface forces become uh, larger and larger uh, thereby demanding a stronger and stronger modes of actuation to induce uh, motion so so there's really you know in terms of the fabrication scheme there's really no practical limit uh, that I see in terms of the overall size scales. Like I said, we could go 10 times smaller than what we reported. We just couldn't move the robots once they're that small. They're just sticking to everything. So, but if it's a swimmer, you know, it's not, not a problem, you know, in, in, the, in that sense, not, not as significant a problem anyway. So, so I don't think feature size is going to be a problem. Um, perhaps certain um, 3D geometries. I mean, I guess what, what we're able to do very easily with this scheme is um, 3D structures that are more or less sort of open architecture in, in their overall design. If you want um, you know, a dense 3D structure that, that has materials distributed through a volumetric space uh, with, with little open space, I, I think that becomes a little bit more difficult. As you might imagine, you know, if you think about a kid's pop-up book, again, everything is starting in the plane, and then you move into the third dimension, you only have a certain amount of materials and now you're moving them from a multi-layer architecture in a 2D geometry into a 3D geometry. You know, it's kind of intuitive that you would end up with a lot of open space, you know? And so uh, I think that's kind of a, a feature of the approach. Um, you can uh, use sort of uh, different kinds of multi-layers. You stack up more and more layers in the, in the 2D precursor and then you can uh, achieve more space filling 3D structures, but ultimately there will be kind of a limitation there. But but at the same time, if you think about 
you know, insects as an inspiration. I mean, the legs are kind of strung out over space. And so there is a lot of open area there that, that I think is, um, it is sort of naturally well aligned to, to the kinds of 3D structures, but, but we can't do arbitrary 3D structures, let's say. And, and in that sense, we don't have the same level of versatility as one has in a, in a 3D printer. And, and I think, you know, there's probably also a need for inverse design tools. So, so we have a good uh, capability for modeling the forward problem. We know for a given 2D precursor, uh, what it will uh, move into, uh, you know, during that geometry transformation process. But if you ask me, you know, here's the 3D geometry I want to create. What does my 2D precursor need need to look like? That that's a much much more challenging computational problem. So may, maybe there's some real opportunity there from from a modeling standpoint to to develop those kinds of uh, design tools for the future. That's a good point. Maybe I want to ask you, there is something, maybe part of this design was quite challenging. You mentioned computation and modeling, but maybe maybe it was quite challenging in the beginning or maybe understanding. And also if you hold also different uh, views, like disagreement, and if we speak about microbotic design, maybe you think the approaches may be used commonly in this field, you have a different views. You think maybe that's not the right approach, critique or different views. Yeah, I mean, I think design tools are, are going to be important, you know, as, you know, in any field of engineering, you want to be able to do upfront design and modeling. And like I said, we have a fairly powerful framework, uh, you know, that, that allows us to predict, you know, the forward problem. And this is in collaboration with uh, Professor Yanggang Huang, who's in mechanical engineering here. He does all the simulations for us, actually. So, so I think that's pretty, pretty well um, well developed and we have great quantitative agreement between predictions from, from modeling and experimental results. And we looked at that uh, in, in great detail. But I think for the broader community to sort of adopt these methods, it will be helpful, you know, to have modeling capabilities for that inverse problem, e even if it's relatively uh, simple in, in terms of the, the, the capabilities. So, so we've uh, published a couple of papers in that direction. I think, um, you know, there's a lot more work that needs to be done, but um, you know, I think you'd like to be able to simulate. So, and and I think the simulations, you know, uh, are going to go beyond, you know, how to design a desired 3D uh, architecture, but but also to um, the question of how how the actuators, um, you know, impose m uh, movements of that 3D architecture. So the whole thing, not not just the fabrication approach, but you know, a full set of uh, uh, you know, multi-physics models. And, and th those may also extend to understanding how the electronics and the, and the radios operate in, in these 3D structures. It's multi-material and you have to think about how the entire body of the robot is acting as an antenna, for example, if you want to do two-way wireless uh, communication. So that's not, you know, modeling is not our main emphasis. That, that is in my group. You know, we're more of an experimental uh, group, but but in terms of the broader community, I think uh, the field would benefit from models, you know, that that can be um, made available as as open open software for you know the broader community to to leverage uh, in in the design of you know robots for the future in 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 this size uh, regime specifically. Mm -hmm. Great. Maybe since it goes down, I have a few questions for you. The first one, the interplay again between the material and architecture, and here we have fabrication, maybe a characterization modeling. 
the many things here, but mainly for the material architecture across different scale, what is the key factors if you can pinpoint that's very crucial in the this design for the interplay between material architecture? Yeah, I mean, I th I think um, coming coming back to a point that I made made before is that uh, you know the alignment of our um, fabrication approaches with uh, you know the vast array of thin film growth and patterning techniques that have been uh, developed over the last century or so uh, turns out to be really important. So you know we can integrate you know shape memory polymers with uh, shape memory alloys with uh, you know, device grade semiconductor materials. We can build in, you know, light emitting devices, um, integrated circuits and so on. And, and I think, you know, for multi-material structures, you, you want your, um, your, your overall fabrication schemes to be, to be aligned with, with the, uh, with the state of the art. Right. And so, you know, we can use materials deposited by physical de uh, vapor deposition, chemical vapor deposition, MBE, uh, MOCVD, all, all of the latest and greatest and most powerful ALD techniques in, in thin film growth are uh, immediately applicable. And we, we can leverage all of those in a very straightforward way. And then not only depositing those materials, but patterning them, uh, each one uh, uh, layer, uh, a layer at a time and in um, essentially perfect registration with, with one another, just, just using the kinds of lithographic techniques, you know, that exist in, in the semiconductor industry. So feature sizes, you know, well below a micron are, are very easy to achieve these days and, and overlay registration also uh, to, to precision uh, at, at a very, very small fraction of a micron. So probably addressing any kind of conceivable need uh, in in micro robotic uh, structures, so so if that's your starting point, you're in a very good position to leverage diverse materials, uh, heterogeneously integrated uh, together with with one another, uh, in in ways that can achieve you know uh, outcomes and and uh, address requirements of of, of the robot uh, ultimately, and that's that's probably you know uh, the the most powerful feature of what. Uh, we're putting forward is some, some ideas for for the ro robotics community more generally. That's great. Maybe a quick question again about the using heterogeneous material. Maybe I want to ask you the right approach to combine different material combination in one structure. Like, yeah, I mean, one way to do it is just deposit one layer after another. You you can you can do that, and you know that's that's the. Um, foundations for for how integrated circuits are built but in some cases you know certain of the materials will be incompatible with deposition deposition conditions associated with other classes of materials that that you might want to uh to include in your overall structure and so you know we uh and now you know a number of other groups as well have um addressed that limitation by uh the development of techniques in transfer printing. And so, so we use uh, soft rubber stamps to lift these thin film material structures formed on one substrate uh, to lift them onto the surface of, of a soft stamp so that they can be delivered by, by printing process uh, to another surface, another substrate. And um, that's a pretty simple concept, but, but it works extremely well. It's used in uh, manufacturing and it's being explored as an example for the development of micro uh, LED based displays, a very hot uh, area of development in the display industry. 
And so there you're taking um, extremely tiny light-emitting diodes formed on a growth wafer, and then you're uh, using transfer printing to move them from that wafer in high-density uh, arrays uh, into sparse uh, arrays on a target substrate, which might be a plate of glass or a sheet of plastic. And so that, that turns out to be an enabling uh, manufacturing unit operation um, that, that avoids uh, limitations associated with the inability to grow uh, you know, crystalline material on, a mor on a amorphous substrate. So it's very, very difficult, almost impossible to grow the kinds of uh, materials you need for high-performance inorganic LEDs on a glass substrate. So you bypass that limitation by growing them on a preferred substrate, a crystalline wafer substrate, uh, and then you release them from that substrate and, and print them using these soft stamps onto the uh, device substrate, the, the substrate you want to uh, build, build your display, glass or plastic, as, as examples. And so that, that turns out to work extremely well. And you can leverage that kind of scheme also uh, you know, to form these uh, planar precursor structures for, for these micro-robots that result from this kind of buckling pop-up process. So, so you can do uh, very heterogeneous materials integration in that way. And uh, as a result, you know, for us, we, we demonstrate in these robots, we're including uh, polymers. Uh, it's a polyimid uh, sort of uh, base uh, or body for, for the robot. We have these uh, shape memory alloys, metal alloys, uh, integrated with ceramic. It's a glass, thin glass coating. So, so those are fairly diverse materials. It's metals, it's polymers, it's ceramics. Uh, we don't have semiconductors in there, but we'd easily add those. Uh, we could uh, include, you know, transistors and LEDs, like what, whatever you want. But, but that that kind of heterogeneity is probably, you know, going to be required for for any kind of uh, robot that that has sophisticated modes of operation. And and I think, um, you know, that this scheme can can accommodate that that diversity of materials, pre pretty straightforward way. Mm -hmm. So question left the first one. What may be other open question and also expectation from this paper, especially in micro-robots design, design here, in this scope? What are the expectations of this paper and still open question? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, a set of ideas that, that we're trying to share with the community that we think might be valuable over, over time. Um, I think we're pretty happy with the robots and their, and their performance, but, you know, uh, it's important to point out that they weren't designed to satisfy detailed technical requirements associated with a particular application. It, it's more of a kind of open-ended exploratory effort to see what's possible and to share ideas, like I said, with the community, with the idea, uh, hope, that, hope and expectation that those ideas would be, would be valuable to, to add to the broader toolkit of uh, options in the development of uh, micro-scale robots. But uh, I'd mentioned, you know, there's a limitation. You need direct kind of optical access in order to make the robots move. Um, you know, it'd be better to have onboard power. It'd be better to have a more efficient actuator that could uh, deliver more force over a la larger range of uh, displacements. There's all kinds of um, you know, opportunities for improvements. I, you know, uh, you know, we the robots are walking around, but they don't have separate uh, limbs that can be actuated to manipulate objects, for example, which, which seems like it's probably something you would want to have ultimately. <laughs> so it's yeah. a very much a starting point, many, many directions for uh, new ideas and, 
and added uh, technical sophistication. We're pretty happy as this this kind of a still starting point, though. Yeah, maybe last question. If you look to maybe down the road, what's the ultimate goal? You mentioned many features, but when you think about this insect, we have an evolution and we try to, you already have this background in, in, in the labs. And I think that's very interesting. I would like to ask you, what is really the key point here to go what we see like in the insects? Just yeah. what is the thing? I think the actuator piece is, is the area that, that could uh, benefit most strongly from new ideas or improvements. Um, you know, I think the control systems, if you, if you consider, you know, integration of um, microelectronic components, I, I think that can be very sophisticated, maybe not the most power efficient, you know, in, in terms of, you know, thinking about bio, biological inspiration, but still, you know, in terms of function, I think, you know, the, the neural networks, you know, that you can achieve uh, in, in silicon are, are quite, quite powerful. It's really that actuator piece. I mean, I think the, the, the fabrication approaches look pretty good to me. I mean, not perfect, but that, that seems pr pretty good. I, I think actuator um, approaches, you know, the shape memory alloys, as we discussed, work, works pretty well, but the range of motion is, is sort of limited and, uh, you know, the power efficiency is not great. Like, how do you create a muscle, you know, uh, that operates like, like those in, in, in the insect world? That, that would be hugely valuable so so i think that's an area and I, I think the community kind of appreciates that more, more or less i don't think this is a new insight but but it's certainly just kind of a reinforcement of a general perception that i think is already out there yeah, great i don't know if you have any final words maybe about paper or maybe people listening to you any final words words like to see no I, I just think this is a great area for for research it's certainly fun for for us um you know to to be active in in this space and there are plenty of um there's plenty of room for creative people and great ideas and um you know i think it's a, a rapidly evolving uh field and it'll be interesting to see uh where we are in three or four years